Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. You have heard me talk, probably, maybe, for years. Uh, I call it the Salem Witchification of America. And so when the latest book by this gentleman, my next guest, came out, um, I was super excited to start reading it. Bill O'Reilly, he's a legendary broadcaster for four decades, creative uh, new digital news media platform, BillOReilly.com. And also, by the way, uh, he and his uh, collaborator, Martin Dugard, they're the author of the best-selling nonfiction series of all time, the Killing series, about 19 million books in print, 18 of his nonfiction books, number one nonfiction. Bill O'Reilly, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good, Pete. How are you doing down there? I'm doing all right. I cannot complain. Um, so I, uh, I saw, I enjoyed and saw your uh, interview with Tucker Carlson uh, the other day, and uh, particularly the discussion of the, the, the new media and the platform you have built. Uh, so should I throw, like, media, new media magnate into the... Into the title, into the resume? Mogul. Okay. I like it. Um, Yeah, I run three corporations now, and it's very fascinating uh, to see what's involved in the last six and a half years. Got about 60 people working for me. Uh, My studios are in my homes. I have two homes on Long Island, lucky enough to have that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we are fiercely independent, um, incredibly honest. And we do radio on WBT from the very beginning. And I can't thank your radio station enough um, for broadcasting uh, me. It's a legacy station, and those are the ones that we want throughout the United States. Um, We do the books. Killing the Witches is the latest one. First day sales, Pete, 63,000 copies. Wow. Congrats. That's awesome. But what that says is that um, the American people are shifting away from the corrupt corporate media into the independent media. Um, And I'm very, very happy that that's uh, occurring. So I was on on the cutting edge of cable news. We made that, and that was 27 years ago. Um, And now I'm on the cutting edge of independent news, on the internet, BillOReilly.com. Right, you do your no-spin news broadcast weekday nights at 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock on the first TV. That's uh, Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, so you're all over the digital space. But yep. but you also work for yourself now, so that's that's got to be good. Yeah, Carson, and, and anybody who wants to see that interview, I understand 25 million people have seen it. Can you believe that? <laughs> I can't. See, I'm not in that world. I mean, X, Twitter, yeah, I know what it is. YouTube, we're all over YouTube, but I'm not, I don't live in there. I mean, I'm still, you know, an old guy. Um, but uh, we're talking about um, the difference of working for yourself. And, and 
I have to tell you that, you know, it's so much better, so much healthier for me. I'm not a real corporate cat anyway. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm kind of an independent maverick guy, always been that way. But it's working out, and um, we're very pleased to response of the interview. You can see it on BillOReilly.com. We go there, and there's a little window. You just hit it, and Carlson and I appear, which is pretty frightening, but it is Halloween <laughs> season. Well, no, that's, well it's, it goes to the old adage, right? Content is king. And if you make good content and you're good at what you do, then the audience will find you. And you're proof of that, I think. Uh, you were also, you. yeah, well, you were also a history teacher. Um, we talked about that on, uh, in one of our prior interviews. And um, the best teachers are the best communicators. That's what you have going for you as well and always have. And so that's, that's what made, I think, you made you a good teacher um, is you make the stories real to people, to kids, but also to an audience now. And it did with this book. It, your books read very, very fast. Like your broadcast. Yeah, we always do that. Yeah. This is the 13th killing book. And uh, a lot of people ask, well, why did you write about the Salem witch trials? Because there are witch hunters today. The cancel culture, that's all witch hunting. Yeah. It's all allegation. And it's destroying people, not just famous people, it's regular people every day. Because the accusation then becomes the conviction. No due process. In Salem, these people had no idea what hit them. I mean, they're working on a farm, and then all of a sudden the constable shows up with handcuffs and says, come with me. And two weeks later, they have a rope around their neck because some nine-year-old girl says that they're possessed by the devil. I mean, it's staggering. Twenty human beings murdered up there in Salem. And what's interesting is today, uh, Salem, 25 miles north of Boston, makes millions of dollars by billing itself which city? Yeah. And when we went up to ask them about that, they wouldn't talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, well, so, yeah, because it's kind of nasty, but, uh, you know, it yeah. pays the bills, I guess. And, you know, when you uh, really step back and look at it, um, the, all this witch hunting is being used in the political arena. I mean, Trump uses the term witch hunt every single day now. And I'm not in business to be Trump's lawyer or, you know, to convince anybody about Trump, but some of the stuff that he's facing is just absurd. It's ridiculous. And they're doing it because they can get away with it, uh, the Democratic Party, because there's very little challenge. Here's something interesting, Pete, I think your uh, audience will uh, respond to. In Salem, there were some good people in 1692 who knew this was murder. But if anybody spoke out, the next day they were accused of being a witch. Mm -hmm. So everybody, nobody would, there was no dissent. Today, I've been doing commentary on radio and television now for 27 years. Every day of my life, I'm smeared, attacked, defamed, and slimed. Every single day. And it's so out of control in America now that it's going to come back and really, and I think it's damaged the country already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You write in the book, Fear Has Returned. It's a mirror of Salem. Many good people turn away from cancel culture corruption rather than criticize it. There is an active evil in our country. It is present for all to witness. There are now thousands of cases of shattered lives with more emerging every day. Something is generating all of this. Um, and it's true. And I've, uh, that's why I called it the Salem Witchification of America, because you started seeing it. I'm so glad you connected this stuff together in the book, because as I'm reading through, because there's kind of like three parts of the book, right? As I'm reading the Salem uh, historical records that you guys gr- uh, got and compiled and turned into understandable uh, uh, biographies of these people, but I'm reading through it. I'm like, this just, it, it sounds like it's ripped from the headlines from today. 
You know, and again, that's why I selected the topic, because it's vital that Americans understand what is happening before their eyes. Look, most people have to make a living. They work hard. They're raising the urchins. They don't have a lot of discretionary time. But it's important that you know what your country is doing, because right now we are on the wrong track. And Americans know that. Seventy percent in every poll say that the country's going the wrong way. And it's true, we are. But in order to correct that, we have to define it. So Killing the Witches is, is a really good read. Uh, it'll keep you up at night. It's a little scary. Yeah. I wouldn't give it a 12-year-old. Um, <laughs> but when you get through it, you're going to know a lot about your country's origins and why we have the Constitution we have. And then you're going to know about demon possession, because that's the last third of the book. We take you to the set of The Exorcist. Eight people died while making that movie. Yeah. So what I mean, ma- is staggering? So you, you so yeah there are like three essential parts I think like the the biggest part is the Salem story. Then you talk about uh Ben Franklin, you talk about a lot of the founding fathers, the impact right. on America, its influence today, what they saw and what their parents saw and like what they were steeped in. But then you go on to like you said this uh uh the story behind the movie The Exorcist. Um so what made you want to link that in with the other two components? Because the witchcraft murders in Salem were all about being possessed by the devil. The accusations were, you're a witch because you do the devil's bidding. That's what these kids were saying. And these idiot clerics who benefited economically when they killed the witch because their property was seized, they were peddling this. Well, we got to kill this person because they're... Uh, possessed by the devil. There are demons. And now in America, there are cases of exorcism, and then it's really the same thing. So we got into the legitimacy of that, what really happened. And the exorcist book and movie is based on a real case. It was a boy, not a girl. And we take you through it. It's harrowing. Yeah. It was kind of scary. Um, as a uh, as a uh, born and raised Catholic as well, I was like, yeah, this is – like I, I don't ever really like to get too close to that stuff because I just feel like it might open the door to something, you know? So yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I tell my atheist friends, I say, you read this, and then you explain to me how that happened. Uh-uh. And, and you know, they can't. Yeah. No, it's – yeah. Documented, it, as you know, we document everything in the book. There's no, you know, fiction in the book. Right. Well, and that's what was uh, amazing to me as well, was how much of the stuff from Salem was documented um, and still exists, that you can go and read all of this stuff, too, and you've got Absolutely. pictures of Absolutely. Yeah. Every word of, of every trial was written down by those people up there. Yeah. And it's in museums, and we got all the stuff. Best-selling author, legendary broadcaster, and uh, new media mogul, BillOReilly.com is the website. The book is called Killing the Witches, the Horror of Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, Bill, thanks so much for your time, as always. Uh, Much continued success to you. Hey, Pete, it's always fun talking to you. Anytime you need me, just give me a call. Will do. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. All right, you may have noticed that I've been helping the Alzheimer's Association of Western North Carolina for a while, and it's a great organization. they got awesome people with huge hearts. My grandfather died of Alzheimer's when I was a kid, and back then there wasn't a lot of support for caregivers and family. Now, things are different today thanks to the work of the Alzheimer's Association. That's why I support them. Every year we do a series of walks all over the country. 
There are a bunch in the Carolinas. You can go to alz.org slash walk for a walk to end Alzheimer's near you. This month, there are walks in Hendersonville, Rock Hill, Mooresville, Greenville. And in October, we got Charlotte, Gastonia, Asheville, Kannapolis, Hickory, and Spartanburg. Go to alz.org for all of the dates and locations. We're closer than ever to stopping Alzheimer's, and we're asking if you can help us get there. Will you walk with me for a different future for families? For more time, for treatments, this is why we walk. Killing the Witches, the horror of Salem, Massachusetts. First off, I did not know um, that, well, I'll ask you, do you know how, uh, Bernie, let's play, let, let's play a, a, a historical, you, you're, you're playing historical contests with Vince Coakley all the time. Yeah. All right. I'm nervous. So, well, this isn't, all right, well, how long do you think, which trials lasted in Europe? Like the enti- like when they stopped happening in general. Yeah, not like an individual trial yeah, okay, would go okay. like you know two days. But right, 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 right. But um, how long were they holding these witch trials? Let's say hundred years. Yeah, two hundred years. Oh my god, two hundred years! They were putting people to death for two hundred years. She's the- a witch. Yeah, <laughs> just nuts and. What Bill was talking about, these these young girls in Salem, Massachusetts, which, by the way, I did not know this also, but the first um, the first executions of witches, you know where it was? It was like 40 or 50 years before Salem. It was in Connecticut. And that explains why I've never really trusted Connecticut growing up on Long Island. I never, it was always something about Connecticut. I just, mm, it's just a little bit off. Yeah, they started they started hanging women. It was predominantly women. Now there there were a couple men that got accused of being witches or I guess warlocks. Um but they were always individuals that uh were well initially it was like the uh sort of the marginalized people. But then as the trials became more sensational and the the girls that were the accusers here and there were there were just like a handful of these teenage girls and they would put on these exhibits pretending to flail around and be possessed they would watch the the accused and they would accuse them and then they would be brought in and back then you know before the founding of America basically before we had the constitution and rule of law and all that it was all just um if you were accused like, you didn't even get to present a defense. You just had to have people come in and speak on your behalf. It was assumed you were guilty. Does this sound familiar? This is the connection to cancel culture. It's been going on for a while. And um, they would bring these people in. And then, of course, they start uh, kind of going up the social hierarchy, going up that ladder. And they start accusing uh, more and more prominent people in the community. They they executed like one of the founders of their church, this old widow. She was like 80 years old or something. And these little girls, they would watch the accused in the courtroom. And if the accused, you know, turned and looked off to the right side or something, they would like all snap to the right and contort their bodies and twist them up, their necks, like as if they were turning to the right. Oh, they're doing it to me. They would on the floor and stuff, just these big performances that they're being injured somehow. 
that they're being possessed by this woman. One accuser in particular, Ann Putnam, her name appears 400 times in court documents. She is responsible for the hanging of 11 people. In 1706, she confesses that she lied on the stand during the witch trials. It was, they were all lies. Nine, quote unquote, afflicted girls who would make accusations and identify all of the witches, which was weird that none of the nine girls, nobody ever thought that they might be the witches. That was kind of weird. And then the, the prosecutors were these two clergy members. I mean, again, these like descendants of the Puritans here, right? So <laughs> it's not exactly the most open and liberal-minded congregation. I mean, these guys were like in church all the time, no holidays, uh, they, like like seven-hour uh, uh, sermons and stuff. Yeah, I mean, they'd throw you in the stocks. They'd burn holes in your tongue and stuff. 12-year-old uh, Ann Putnam led the nine girls. She testifies against 62 different, quote-unquote, witches, more than anybody else. More than 200 accused witches are arrested. 17 total are executed. And the girls thoroughly enjoy being the center of attention. You can call it a panic. You can call it a contagion. Human nature hasn't changed. Neither has evil. Hey, so real quick, hurricane season is here, and this is your reminder to check your emergency supplies. You should have a three-day supply of food, water, and medicines, minimum. And Carolina Readiness Supply can help you get started or expand your supply. Food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies too, because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you can use for any kind of emergency. Whether you're an experienced prepper or you have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you in Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply, will you be ready when the lights go out? When Ibram X. Kendi was hired by Boston University in the summer of 2020, he founded the Center for Anti-Racist Research, or as I call it, the CFAR, or the CAFAR. And uh, the timing coincided with the death of George Floyd. And like Black Lives Matter, Kendi's research center quickly attracted millions of dollars in donations. The center was flush with cash. But even after all the hype and the donations, it seems that the center wasn't working as planned. Last week, there were reports that most of the staff had been laid off. Total staff was somewhere around 45 people. Now about 20 to 30 of them are gone. John Sexton at uh, hotair.com. Quoting the Boston Globe, current and former employees in the center who spoke with the Globe were critical of Kendi's management and questioned how a department that had received millions of dollars in donations and grants since its, its launch could now be in a position where it's, getting, uh, where it's cutting staff. The Globe quotes Spencer Piston. That's a very strong sounding name, isn't it? 
that's like a it's like the name of some character in uh in like the Cars movie. Spencer Piston. The faculty lead of the center's policy office and an associate professor in Boston University's political science department said, quote, there are a number of ways it got to this point. It started very early on when the university decided to create a center that rested in the hands of one human being, an individual given millions of dollars and so much authority. John Sexton says, you could tell there's a whole story behind that quote. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. He didn't tell the whole story, but yeah, it sounds like there's a whole story behind that. But you know, people are going to be too afraid um, to speak out about his, Kendi's management ineffectiveness, let's say, right? Saida Grundy, an associate professor at Boston University, worked for Kendi Center, the Kafar, uh, a year before she quit. She was working there for a year and then she quit. And she said, quote, it became very clear after I started that this was exploitative and other faculty experienced the same and worse. Interesting. Ibram X. Kendi exploiting people? Hmm. It turns out this isn't the first time Ibram Kendi has been in this position. Actually, before he started the Kafar at Boston, he started the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. The Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. So the ARPCAU, or as I call it, the ARPCAU. The Washington Free Beacon reports back in 2020, quote, In August of 2019, as young journalists agitated for their newsrooms to pivot towards social justice, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's Research Center at American University secured a $50,000 grant from the Ford Foundation, which generally funds all sorts of leftist uh, operations, uh, including NPR, for example. And... Uh, this uh, these journalists at these newsrooms that were wanting to pivot towards social justice, they wanted uh, the development of a racial reporting guidebook to help the media hew to Kendi's anti-racist principles. Free Beacon reports that neither the guidebook nor the symposium ever actually materialized. Further details were promised well into 2020. The project's mysterious disappearance is but one instance in which Kendi and colleagues' big promises never came to fruition. There was another grant of about $200,000 for National Anti-Bigotry Project, or the, the NAP. And that exists entirely on paper. Other projects Kendi promised policy teams, the world's largest library of data on racial inequality, classes for American university students. None of that came to fruition before his departure for Boston, for his new, uh, for his new center for anti-racist research or the Kafar. This has all of the hallmarks of a grift, right? The layoffs over at the free beacon. This is Joseph Simonson. Those layoffs at the Kafar up in Boston, the most recent round the other day, may not have much of an impact considering that the center has hardly produced any original research at all. The Boston University-based center has produced 
two, a whole two original research papers with 45 people on staff. They, they produced two research papers since they were founded three years ago. So they're not even averaging one paper per year. Output from the center's scholars largely consists of op-eds or commentary posted on their website. The group's plans to, quote, maintain the nation's largest online database of racial inequity data in the United States quickly fizzled out, and the database has been dormant since 2021. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same thing that he was promising to do with the 200K from the Ford Foundation at American University. And he never did that up there or down there. He goes to Boston, makes the same promise. It's probably the same pitch deck, right? It's probably the same business plan. Is it a business plan if it's for like a center like this? I don't know. On its website, the Center for Anti-Racism Research, or the CAFAR, would uh, frequently suggest that its scholars were involved in all sorts of research conducted by unaffiliated Boston University departments. In one instance, the center shared on its website a report from its research and policy team that exposes dramatic shortfalls by visas uh, for victims of trafficking and whatever. But in reality, the report was actually authored by professors with Boston University's, uh, the law department's immigrants' rights and human trafficking. uh, that, That department. They didn't have anything to do with it over at the Kafar. Press release on the report actually makes no mention of Kendi's group. Neither of the professors who filed the Freedom of Information Act lawsuits against the federal government to obtain the data for the report have any affiliation with Kendi's center. The most recent press release from Kendi's organization linked to a Public Health Post article. That's the name of the publication, Public Health Post. And the article was about an increase in hate crimes against Asians. And at the bottom of the story, Public Health Post said that it it is collaborating with researchers at the Center for Anti-Racist Research Racial Data Tracker to produce the series. The outlet went on to claim that the Racial Data tra- uh, Tracker will release its findings to the public in spring of 2023. Guess what never got published? <laughs> yeah, the data for the Racial Data Tracker. That story was published in June. And then there's this. Charles C.W. Cook over at National Review. He asks, is Ibram X. Kendi a racist? By his own definition, yes. All right, this guy's been waiting a very, very, very long time. It's not even on topic, but it's Friday. I'm feeling generous. I'm celebrating the availability of a phone line. So, Snake, welcome to the show. How are you? <laughs> no, because you're, because you're filling the, the great Limbaugh shoes and... In honor of Open Line Friday, right? Yeah, that's uh, it. Well, uh, yeah, I, I could like basically ice. curl up in one of his shoes and still have room for like another four people in there. Uh, you're you're being you're being humble, but no, you're that's doing honest. A hell of a job. Well, yeah, thank you. No, you really are. Anyway, I, I, so I've been listening while I've been on hold and you know nearly starved to death, and, <laughs> I, and and so I had another different different comment question. But first, I got to know what is an Asian? What is a what? An Asian. I thought you said Asian. An Asian. Sorry, Asian. Oh, Asian. Okay. Or would that be, should I say Asian? I happen to live with some Asians, and the only people that discriminate against Asians are freaking liberals. First of all. And then I'll leave that at that. All right. Well, it was was sort of like the whole uh, stop Asian hate thing um, that that the progressives were all on board for. Harvard? 
Yeah, until they realized, yeah, exactly. Uh, until they realized, uh, like when the data started uh, being divulged, that it was actually uh, African-Americans who were the ones attacking the Asians the most. And then it kind of like died down. It's like, oh, OK, maybe uh, maybe we can yeah. keep up the Asian hate at Harvard. Yeah. Libs, libs are always off to another topic yeah. uh, when the logic comes rolling around. But uh, the, the reason I called was yesterday and you were saying you know, everybody should show up at the debate. I don't mm-hmm. disagree with that. In the in the case of this particular fella, he has a record. And and he has a record of being a sitting incumbent president with all the power that goes with it. And he lost the election. And then he went on to whine and blame that on the other team. Now, the other team does cheat every single time. I got it. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not how that's not how winners go about their lives. The team, the other team, cheats. You have to win anyway, and and so, so for four years at least, and actually longer, he's been blathering about. He's been teaching a whole cohort of children to blame their problems on somebody else. And do you think those problems will ever get fixed? And and everything that he sees is somebody else's. It's it's somebody else's fault. There's and, a quote the from him about that very philosophy from years ago, where. Uh, he said something to that effect that uh, like he like if he ever fails at anything, he never considers himself a failure. He he uh, um, he says that uh, that he was cheated. It was rigged or something like that. And he explicitly said this as his philosophy for how he moves on when things don't work out the way he wants them to work out. Well, I, it's, it doesn't shock me a bit, but I, I, from a perspective of the debates, listen, us Republicans. If we want to affect policy, we have to win elections. Mm-hmm. This guy is batting 250, and he's, and he's whining about it and making every excuse why he didn't win elections. And I'm just done with it, and I don't need him to be in any debate because he's a loser, and I'm not going to uh, vote to nominate a loser. Well, uh, I yeah. hope to God I don't have to vote for him against Joe whoever or whatever. Right. Oh, well, and that's, the, that's sort of the, that's the strategy, right? He's, he knows he's got enough support in the primary to win, so he's not going to to debate as if he were an incumbent, right? And he was getting some challenge from RFK Jr., right? So he's so that's Biden saying like I'm the incumbent, I just won, so I can just ignore the challenge. Uh, but uh, he didn't win the last time, so I, I think it is incumbent upon him to now uh, debate. But he won't. And then the 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 strategy is he gets into the general election, and uh, he hopes that people you know, don't like Joe Biden and the economy enough that he's going to somehow win back people that didn't want to vote for him last time around. I don't know if the strategy works. It very well might. I don't know. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a gamble. That's, I think that's the play. Well, I, that's his play. Uh, yeah. Here's, here's, here's a shout out to all you Republicans. Snake's telling you don't bet on another, don't bet on a loser another time. It's, it's, I don't care what he did or what he says he's going to do. He's a loser. Mm. Into that, I don't know though. I mean, you're asking you're asking us to follow a snake, and the last time humans did that, some bad stuff happened, man. Just just listen to the snake; he's learned from his mistakes. All right, hey, have a good week on other people. Yeah, there you go. Have a good weekend, snake. I appreciate the call, sir. You too, buddy. All right, buddy, take it easy. That's funny. Um, All right, so back to Ibram X. Kendi here. Um, Charles C. W. Cook asks if Kendi is a racist. So let's look at Kendi's definition of a racist policy. Quote, a racist policy is any measure that produces... That's my Kendi uh, impression, by the way. 
I won't continue. A racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial inequity between racial groups. By policy, I mean written and unwritten laws, rules, procedures, processes, regulations, and guidelines that govern people. That's his definition of a racist policy. Um, At the time, the author of the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, said that the center, his center, would solve these intractable racial problems of our time. Boston Globe, describing how his approach has uh, made it possible for the center to succeed, and that's uh, impossible for it to solve the intractable racial problems of our time, a result that one assumes must help to produce or sustain racial inequity between racial groups, right? The failure of his center produces or sustains racial inequity. So what he did sustains racial inequity, right? Because the center was supposed to do these things to solve racial inequity. The failure of the center means racial inequity continues. Ergo, he's a racist. I don't like it any more than you. Oh, and by the way, from the left, Dr. Tyler Austin Harper, assistant professor at Bates College, as a left winger, said, I, I can't help, you know, feel, uh, feel a little bit of sympathy, but also some uh, schadenfreude. The prospect of Kendi's unraveling is not the story of a huckster, but he was selling stuff to white people. That's what he that's what the grift was. He was selling absolution. <laughs> 